Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director here at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking to Craig Garrett of 4ZZZ fame, or 4ZZZ for those of you not raised on Sesame Street. Uh, Today we dance over a bunch of topics, Uh, Craig's journey across the country via public radio stations, the fact that he has three novels going at one time, and how his creative practices have changed over the course of his life. That was that was the most interesting part to me, uh, talking to someone who, like me, writes and, like me, in his 20s, found himself most creatively effective in the dark of night and early morning. But now he works in the day, often just as he gets up. It's interesting to get insight into how much habits can change, but productivity stay constant. We also spend a fair bit of the podcast talking about the dangers or perhaps non-dangers of modern technology, and that was really interesting too. Now, uh, just like the last two weeks, before we start, I have to apologize for the background noise in this episode. Um, House was getting renovated and the regular West Village business compounded on top of those renovations and everything became pretty cacophonous. Uh, Thanks to editor Tyler, it should all come out sounding all right. Anyway, some regular housekeeping. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you can visit us at houseconspiracy.org to learn more about our artists and about how we might be able to support you. And now, on to the show. Craig Garrett's writing studio has occasionally also been Craig Garrett's sleeping hollow. I have no idea how he fit in there. He's not a particularly short guy and the space is not particularly big. I like to imagine him fetal, awakening slightly sore, stretching out in the sun as he starts his day. Craig's been creating a uh, soundscape of House Conspiracy during his time here. He's been staying nights, spending mornings, and getting the raw audio from these podcasts in order to cut together a piece that encompasses his experience of House Conspiracy. We'll be broadcasting that piece soon. Like me, Craig cycles to the house. He locks up his bike, and then he gets to work. A few hours later, or many hours later, depending, he'll head home. And now, not quite headed home, here's Craig Garrett. As someone with a lot on their plate, like you do a lot of sort of different stuff, um, do you find sleeping is a ha- it gets in the way? I used to. Mm-hmm. That used to be my philosophy. I just, um, as younger, like say um, in my 20s. But now I, as I age... I can't actually function particularly well without it. So mm-hmm. it doesn't get, not sleeping gets more in the way than sleeping, if right. that makes sense. Um, so I'm far more effective if I turn everything off, uh, you know, at five thirty, six o'clock in the evening, chill out, have dinner, get to bed, wake up uh, and get going again the next day than actually trying to push through mm-hmm. till seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. Sort of if, if that makes sense. So, so you're an early riser then? Yeah, I tend to be. I, I wasn't for a long time. But uh, again, probably in the last five to ten years, mm-hmm. I've started to get up at like six. Is a, Yeah, is about the time I'd get up. But I never, I never saw six o'clock through my 
20s or my 30s, <laughs> I don't think. Because And I want to sort of pivot that to sort of your creative practice because there are a lot of writers, like I think Ishiguro is particularly famous um, for this sort of thing, but like getting up quite early and being creative. Do you find you're creative in those early hours in the morning or is it just sort of a life routine? It's more of a life routine. So I'll, I'll still start work at about nine. I try and keep a bit of a regime. I like to do nine to five, even though I've worked from home, um, both paid work and my creative work, like for as long as I can remember. Um, but I like to try and keep a nine to five type of day. Mm-hmm. So I will sit down and if you like, be creative between nine to five and that doesn't always come off and that's a level of discipline that I like to instill in myself um but it's it's kind of nice getting up at six and having those three hours to in a way chill out Mm -hmm. before doing the stuff that I'm gonna do uh I find that I am often a bit more efficient or a bit more productive in the mornings between that nine a.m. to maybe 12 p.m., 1 p.m. doesn't always work that way. It's not sometimes I can do absolutely nothing for those three hours and then everything kicks in at 3 p.m. or something like that. So it's all up in the air, but that's the rhythm that I try and keep myself in. And so in terms of that rhythm, if you've hit if you hit a piece of inspiration at 4.30 and then it comes 5, do you what do you prioritize? Do you go, well, I'm going to ride this wave, I'm, I'm going to follow this idea, or do you go, no... Long term, it's going to be better for me to stop. I sit myself halfway through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sorry, that doesn't make any sense. I pitch myself halfway between the two of them. Okay. So I will ride the wave, say, um, a bit longer. Or what I will tend to do is truncate what I'm doing. So I'll go, this is the wave, this is the inspiration, but I need to do these five things. I'm not going to get them done tonight. And I'll literally, with my writing, uh, dot point it Mm. and actually leave myself a note so that tomorrow morning when I get up, I know exactly where I was at and what I was doing um, the evening before. Uh, Again, because it goes back to the idea that um, that inspiration and that wave might be happening at the time, but then my brain actually might be shutting down because I've been working all day and that type of thing. And and again, uh, as we were talking about before, uh, getting to know myself, my body, my um, rhythms, um, as you said, sometimes longer term, leave myself a note and come back to it can actually be the best thing to do. Yeah. So when when you say sort of throughout your 20s, you didn't see 6am and yada, 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 and now you're at this place of discipline, were you always disciplined just now it's it's better or did something happen? Did you sort of realise something about how you create that you then instilled this rhythm? I've always been disciplined. Mm-hmm. My rhythm was completely different. The, um, the best time in my 20s, for example, for me to write, um, so uh, coming from that creative writing background, that passion that I have for that, um, outside of the fact that I do radio and I do nonfiction and that type of thing, the best time for me to write um, back in my early 20s through to probably my early 30s was between 10 p.m. and about 3 a.m. Yeah, so that's I was what actually, I find. Yeah, I was actually writing at that point in time and that was when I was 
kicking in. My brain would kick in. Um, and something else that I did uh, when I was about 23, 24, I edited a literary journal called mm-hmm. VoiceWorks oh, uh, yeah. out of Melbourne. Oh, yeah. I know the one. And part of that was it was much easier to work in the evening editing and writing, doing a lot more editing uh, when there was nobody else in the office. Yeah. So I found that I, I would come into the office at midday, but I would be working through till two or three in the morning and that type of thing. So my patterns have changed. My rhythms have changed. Um, that discipline was always there. It was just a matter of actually molding it to myself. Yeah, yeah. right. And it's easier to moonlight when you're younger and you have maybe less of a locked-in life. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, literally moonlighting in, yep. in your case. <laughs> um, so you, ha- you have your fingers in, in a lot of different pies. Um, I've written down here and, you know, you call me out, but... Radio, writing, producing, activism and journalism sort of seem to, like that's five things. How do you how do you juggle all of those? Do you have a favorite? Are there things that you do that are more chores than the others? Or do you find that they're all part of kind of the holistic way that you, you practice as a person? Yeah, they're more different parts of the holistic person who is me. And I have tended to always do those things um i would have to say that creative writing is the thing that is the passion Mm -hmm. that that um is the driving passion behind everything that i do um i just happen to be quite good at these other things um i've I've worked as a journalist, a print journalist. I've been paid as a print journalist before. Um, I've never really been paid as a radio journalist. It's always been through community radio. And I have a philosophy around the idea that community radio both speaks to its communities and also builds them. And I really love that. And that can tie into whatever activism that I happen to be doing. Um, So that's where the journalism, radio, activism sort of all fits together. Um, And I still write short stories and I am working on novels and I have a finished novel that is still unpublished. And so there's that, I guess the idea also is um, engaging with the publishing industry and trying to get stuff published as someone who is relatively unknown that can be quite difficult and yes. challenging. And so these other things that I do, especially the radio, is almost like a um, an automatic... What word am I looking for? Not Touchstone. Automatic. Like, uh... um, I'm kind of thinking of you write a novel, it takes a long time and it could take a long time to get published mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a payoff, but it's a long way away. Whereas with, say, radio and some non-fiction and shorter forms of journalism, that payoff is immediate. Right, yeah, it's the immediacy of those sort of forms. Yeah, and so they, they help balance each other out and they help, if you like, keep a balance psychologically and emotionally and mentally. Um, and over the years, I've looked at issues and I've thought, that'd be great to write an article about that. I'm a relatively slow writer, but I can turn around a radio piece relatively quickly and so I've found that that's actually an outlet for some of that non-fiction writing 
that I've thought I'd wanted to do over the years, but kind of never really got in the headspace to do it. And in a medium where you can engage quickly enough for the reaction to have that immediacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And also a medium that is the way I approach it, other people may approach it this way as well, that is inherently creative. Yes. Um, And as also an arts journalist, I have done some writing as an arts journalist as well, Um, approaching my radio journalism with the aesthetic of an artist Mm -hmm. as well. I try and do that. Um, That sounds a little bit odd to say it in that way. But um, doing news interviews and news stories, but also thinking about different ways of actually engaging an audience that might not necessarily add anything to the information, but adds to that aesthetic of what they're listening to. Yeah, through soundscaping, the sort of stuff that you're doing here. Yeah. Around sort of, yeah, your soundscaping of West End that is combining in with what you're doing, which is really cool and hopefully will be something that we broadcast on this podcast channel. Oh, Um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But are you then sort of excited by this this rise of the podcast medium? Yes. So very excited by it. And um, the way in which people are playing with the medium and... Uh, experimenting and they're incredibly playful Uh, and something that I enjoyed um, and it's been up and down was the podcast Serial. Yeah. So we've all heard of Serial because it's, you know, it was so famous and it blew podcasting apart and all the rest of it. Particularly the first season. Yeah. Season one was amazing. Season two I think was a bit of a lull and season three Shit Town has been completely different again. Shit Town? Is that what S Town is? S Town. Is yeah, S Town yeah. serial? It's it, it serial, yeah. Oh, it right. was um, co produced, if you like, by the serial team and This American okay. Life, even though it was a different journalist who right. was doing okay. it. Um, and so then they played with it again, and instead of releasing everything week by week, they released everything in one download. And then it was so amazingly put together. Like, I don't know. I I don't know how they put put it together. I like, still haven't listened to S Town. I'm oh, really excited to. It's completely literary. As as someone who like you know, from what I can gather, <laughs> I read literary stuff. the The writing that I do is kind of literary, or at least lends itself to that. Um, I started listening to Shit Town and then couldn't stop. I, yeah, awesome. I effectively listened to it as if I was um, reading a book. Uh, and the other thing that I've done that with is a podcast called Alice Isn't Dead. Yeah, by the um, Night Vale. Night Vale. Night Vale team. And look, I don't know if you've listened to Alice Isn't Dead. No, I've listened to Night Vale though. Yeah. I honestly couldn't tell you what Alice Isn't Dead is. Like, I'd be, Aside from a, a podcast. A, well, yeah, but it's not even that. It's playing... That's, that sounds like a silly thing to say. It is a podcast, but it's playing with the format so much that it's kind of like, is it soundscape? Is it art? Is it a story? Is it, you know, a, a narrative or that type of thing? And again, it's one of those things where I tried listening to it like the radio like in the background doing yeah. other stuff, you couldn't do it. Yeah. Had to just sit down and listen to it as if I was reading a book. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, and that's why I think it's probably the most exciting medium yeah. alive right now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. For a couple of reasons. I mean, A, because it's, it's new, the idea of sort of high fidelity radio obviously mm, hasn't mm, been a thing until mm. digital radio. And even then no one really has a digital radio. I mean, aside from like listening through your computer, yeah, yeah which, yeah. but then like that's a podcast. Yep. Um, uh, yeah. This sort of that. And then, but also, I mean, maybe this is a sad indictment and I'd kind of like to hear you weigh in, but this trend of multitasking of kind of consuming media on, on the go. Like I, I listen to so many podcasts, um, but mostly when I'm cycling. Um, so I, I don't know, like, is that, is that a bad thing that, that it's maybe part of why it's such an exciting medium is that it lends itself to our lifestyles, which aren't necessarily good. I don't know. It's just not necessarily standable. Um, I, I wouldn't, actually say good or bad um, in that sense. I mean, I think that you're right in saying podcasts are evolving in response to our lifestyles and they're also, in effect, impacting on those lifestyles, if, if you like. Like, they're, this is where we're at and this is how people are consuming media, so people are creating media to consume in that way. Um, it's... It's when um, uh, with smartphones, I was talking to someone a number of years ago and he's a lecturer at uh, one of the universities here in uh, Brisbane and he was really concerned about the fact that um, he was seeing a lot of his students or people of his students' age uh, on public transport just looking at smartphones and constantly on their smartphone and looking at screens and he said that's a real concern and I said why and he's like well because they don't have an attention span and I said how do you know like oh, because they're flicking through screens and I'm like but they might be actually looking at three or four different things and keeping them all in their head at the same time and why is that necessarily a bad thing and he was kind of talking about well the way that if you like older people went through school and um, attention spans and that sort of idea, uh, younger people didn't have that sort of focus. And I'm like, yeah, but they've got a completely different type of focus and the medium's different and the media is different and the way information is presented is different. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. I think it's just the way things are. And so with podcasts and the way people access them and the way people listen to radio now, I actually love it. I think it's quite exciting and it's going to be a reflection of where we're at and it's also going to drive some of the changes. So if podcasts were to, um, say, for example, more podcasts be made like Serial or, or Shit Town or Night Vale, we might see a lot more people stopping and not listening to stuff while they're riding their bike but sitting down uh, and, you know, huddling around the radio or mm. huddling around the computer and listening to stories like people used to do in the 50s or 40s or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know if that um, adds anything to what you're saying or answers that question. No, no, no. I mean, I think, it, I think it's a good, uh, a good different perspective. I tend to be a little bit more concerned maybe than you about the um sort of the uh, the uh, the discourses around attention spans and whatnot. Yeah. I I tend to I tend to find it 
quite concerning. Um, um, can I ask why why that is? Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Um, so, for instance, it comes actually down. I mean, I mean, a a there's, there's there seems to be there, there it seems to be pretty indisputable. There's a lot of research that our attention spans have been decreased. But you also have to consider the nature of the devices which are decreasing them, which are our phones. And our goal with our phones as users is very different to the goal of the phone as a device. The phone is essentially the first tool that we've had that, and we can hear power tools in the background, but it's the first tool we've had that, that has a different agenda to us. If you use a hammer, it wants to hammer the nail as much as you do because it's an extension of your will. But you're using a phone hypothetically to engage with the news, to engage with the world, to make your life easier. But the phone wants to be maximizing your amount of time so it can serve you ads. That's what it wants to do. It wants to be maximizing your time in a way that it can use your data in the most interesting way that it can keep you there, that it can keep you there. And so the phone's agenda around how it's taking, and I sound like a fucking conspiracy theorist, <laughs> but, 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 but it's true because, because the agenda for what makes a successful app from a consumer standpoint is very different to what it is from a business person's standpoint. And the business person's standpoint does rely on reducing the attention span. And the reduction of the attention span is not by design to our benefit. Hmm. And that's what concerns me about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say, like, that's the same thing that happened with television and commercial television and advertising. But that was never a tool. If you know what I mean. Like, television was a, was a passive thing. Now we've got this this thing that we engage with as a tool, as a functional tool that doesn't actually serve us. Mm. Well, I guess, I guess the other thing is too, what I'm, the way I'm, I'd break it up is though that the phone itself, you're right, is a tool, but it's not the phone. It's the app manufacturers. It's the companies that are using the phone to bring you the app that is actually, and, and you're saying that their design is to reduce attention spans. The phone isn't reducing attention span. It's the platforms on the phone. So that could be, the same thing could be said for the internet and through your computer. And the same thing could be said for commercial television. Do you see where I'm going? Like the, the, the phone in and of itself isn't, reducing attention spans it's the information on it and as you were saying we want we want a phone to keep connected whereas the app developers or the business people or the advertisers want us actually to be disconnected by the sounds of things from what you're saying and only focus on their app or their advertisement yeah, I mean, I mean, to a certain extent, I think I think the key difference with the phone compared to, say, uh, you know, commercial television or a computer is that the phone is consistently accessible. It's complete. It's always on, and it, yeah. it's it's always there, and it's an extension of the self. Like the the phone is an extension of the self. Mm. Um, and the problem is that it it's not purely an extension, yeah, of the self because. It's the it's the extension of platform holders, and and the reason I I, I call the phone out, you know, more so than app developers, though, of course, it's an ecosystem, 
so long as platforms exist where that incentivizes the creation of these sort of apps yep. that are all sort of in conflict and competition and where the KPIs for a good app from our perspective compared to a good app from a developer's perspective are different yep. and aren't on the same goal. And so long as Apple and Android, Google, Microsoft, if anyone has a Windows phone, um, so long as they're developing platforms that facilitate that, then I don't, I don't, I don't know if you can really blame the app developers for using that. Like it, it has to be a full systematic shift. I don't exactly know how that. Would yeah, 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 I see what you're out. saying. Yeah, um, the one thing that I would bring in there is also that obviously we're using the phones. Um, is I'm going to throw this back to you. Is maybe the fact that we have now today a higher literacy in regards to what you're talking about than, say, five years ago. Um, so where I'm, as I said before, I'm not actually that concerned about people's ability or inability with um, attention spans. Could people actually be navigating that ecosystem today quite differently to what they were doing, say, five years ago? And with that higher understanding of the ecosystem and a higher literacy, the concerns around attention spans isn't that great a deal? I, I don't know because mm. there are a couple of constraints that you're working with no matter what. Yep. And those constraints are biology and, and, and time. Yep. Um, so, you know, you've obviously got um, the biology of the fact that our brains can only handle so much and we can only be thinking about one thing at a time, but we can be switching between multiple things like a multi-threaded processor and a computer. Yep. But we can only be focused on sort of one, one, one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. um, though sort of I kind of hate how that's thrown around because technically if you're handling five things in a second those are still five separate things of five separate times. Um, but, um, and then the second thing is time. So I think if we look at sort of the short attention span thing, I think a great example is uh, Trump, actually, in terms, <laughs> yeah, in yeah. terms, not him as a character, but the way he won the election was by exploiting short attention spans. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Was, was by, by the, the, you know, the second that, sort of something would come up and he still does it today. Like he'll, he'll fire someone or for instance, he pulled out, you know, the, the transgender military ban, the, the day that, um, the investigation that he was, uh, his family was, um, in court. Yep. Like he, he pulls that out. Like, like regardless of, of what you think of the ban, whether it was good or bad, um, there, you know, the, the bigger, weirder question is why now and why mm. bother? Um, and the answer is that he's playing people's attention spans. And we're losing because we can't focus on all these things because Trump recognizes how the media works and he recognizes the natural limits of people. Mm. Um, and I, I think we're seeing the exact same sort of thing with technology and, you know, with more and more ads and with all of that stuff. And that, that's why yeah. it concerns me because I think we're hitting a lot of natural limits. Yeah. I tend to, um, I don't necessarily disagree, but I, t I tend to think that um, he's, well, Trump and people who do that sort of thing, like, I mean, since, since I guess, mass media 
uh, people have been exploiting those elements of the media all the time. Mm. Um, so this, it's not actually necessarily anything new, the exploitation of our limits or the exploitation of the limits of the technology or the media itself. Um, no, yeah, but what, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, I think it's evidence that the past five years increased literacy hasn't changed. Hasn't anything. changed since. Yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah. Like obviously it's always been, but it's like even though we're more literate, we have more access and all that, the limits are still there. And I think yep. uh, Trump is an indication of that. And um, and I mean, well, the the other thing is too, um, access to information doesn't necessarily hasn't necessarily always meant that we're better informed. Mm. So, I mean, I, I see from what you're saying also is there's an interplay there of two things. Like there's obviously the natural limits that we've got and we're thinking um, attention spans have been reduced, may or may not have been reduced, but then getting more access and getting more information isn't necessarily making us more literate about the issues but my sort of thing, my idea is that we're actually more literate about the technology. And you're thinking that we're not so literate about, like, like when we engage in that technology, we understand better what we're engaging with and how we're engaging with it. Like, for example, people are talking about more about algorithms. Now, I know that the mm. Centrelink robo-cop <laughs> debt thing brought that up um, and really placed it under a spotlight. But then people are actually talking about the fact that Facebook algorithms and how that impacts, excuse me, how that impacts who we see and what we see and that type of thing. Now, there may not necessarily be a lot we can do about that, but surely we engage with Facebook on the understanding and knowing that those algorithms are going to impact what we can and can't see and we can then change or mitigate those impacts see it's interesting i mean for instance i use facebook news eradicator which is a chrome plugin that removes my newsfeed um okay so i yep. don't i don't see a newsfeed on facebook sure. um because fuck that there's no um, point yeah, yeah, yeah it's awful but if you if you look at um there, there there's a guy named tyler harris who runs a company that is researching sort of this exact stuff oh fantastic um, yeah yeah and he's found that even people who consider themselves Facebook aware in terms of like algorithms and whatnot okay. yep. will still self-report that they wish they hadn't spent X amount of time on that site or that oh, that time okay. on the phone wasn't valuable. And so regardless of our self-awareness around it, we are still reporting afterwards that we wish we hadn't spent that time. So essentially we're still, even though we're aware we're being gypped, we're, we're still, still being sucked, we're still in. Being sucked okay. in. And so like, you know, it's it's like it's like uh, you know you can be self aware about I'm saying YOLO ironically, but then you you end up just saying it, and you're just yeah, a guy yeah. who says YOLO. It's the same. It's the same with like using using your friends. Like I'm Facebook sucking me in with the algorithm. Oh, it's been an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay. like like you you can be self aware mm. about things all you want, but they're still winning. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because. And that that's that's actually that's sort of the crux of sort of what I was saying before is the two kinds of self reporting. The app is getting the report that you want to be on the app in the moment. Yep. And so that's its success rate. Whereas you as sort of a human, as an autonomous figure, your success rate is when you look back and you reflect on your day and you go, was I productive? Or mm -hmm. did, I, did I live a good life today? Did I engage with people? Did I, 
you know, do the tasks I needed to do and do I feel good? Mm-hmm. And that's only after the fact. And you can't tell an app that. You can't go, hey, 10 hours ago, Facebook, I, I, I wish I hadn't done that and I'm unhappy with you. Yeah, yeah, um, Because all Facebook will get from that is you're engaging with Facebook again. again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Okay, yeah. And I understand, like, the app developers and the people selling us ads have completely different agendas mm. to us. Yes, and, and I think sort of the final point on sort of why I, th- why I hold that the phone is quite different is that um, it's the first time we've seen something, like, compared to television, which was a tool, or the internet, even the internet up until 10 years ago when sort of smartphones came around was predominantly not a social platform. It was a platform for getting information. Yep. Um, not, not completely. Obviously, there was AOL chat. There were video games, that sort of thing. But it was also a stationary object. This is the first time where we've interfaced with something on a two-way, on, on what would to a completely untrained eye appear to be a, two, a two-way a two-way system. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. It's consistent. Well, not consistent. It is constant. Mm. Like, we always have our phones. Um, and as you were just saying as well, the phones have changed the internet. Yes. As well. Completely. Completely changed. Yeah, when Apple put out the, the first iPhone, like, that was it. Yep. And then, you know, our usage through those phones. So, you know, we're not 100% blameless in no. creating oh, this sort God, of no. I mean, the market, environment. The market chose this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and that's the thing. Like, yeah, the problem is that there isn't... The, the, de- the depth of feedback is not something that app developers are interested in. No. No, no, no. Well... It sounds like they're interested in selling ads. Yeah. And that's about it. Yeah. Which is one level of feedback, which is, are you on the app? How do I yep. keep you on the app the longest? Mm. Like, for instance, if there was a meditation app that was free <clears throat> and you could, uh, you, me- you wanted to meditate every morning, but the meditation app is free and the way it subsidizes itself is by ads, then it wants to keep you on the meditation app for the longest. When in reality for you, the best meditation might be 15 minutes long and then you'd get off the app. And that would be a perfect app to you. That would be an ideal app. But the, the app's ideal use of you is to keep you on there the longest, even though you just want to do your 15 minutes. So it's, it's yeah, it's the different priorities there. Hmm. But um, maybe shifting away. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you, do you want to have the last word on, on there? No, 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 no. Um, maybe shifting away. I want to talk, um, about how you, how, how did you end up sort of like, cause how did you end up in radio? How did, how did, what drew you to radio? Have you been in radio like most of your life or, um, how'd you get here? I've always listened to the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly community radio yourself or like ABC broadcasts? Uh, yeah, I hardly, so I grew up in Canberra. Um, I can't remember what age I was, but Triple J mm-hmm. got to Canberra whenever, like when I was a teenager. So somewhere in the early nineties. Um, and what I really, really liked and appreciated about Triple J at the time was the news. 
like that I know that sounds slightly odd maybe but it was like yeah this this is the ABC news um but it was for people my age yeah presented in sort of a more engaging way yeah and even looking at the same issues that the other news was looking at um and so maybe even touching on the discussion we just had before, why you and I maybe think a little bit differently about um, attention spans. I used to listen to the radio and read magazines and read books. And at one point I used to listen to the radio and watch television <laughs> at the same time. My little brother's doing that at the moment. Yeah. And so, and I have a friend who uh, used to be um on the internet, listening to the radio, having the TV on in the background and reading like four different books and magazines at one time and then also engaging online and I could, I could never do that. Um, and so I've always loved radio as a format and, as, and a, as a medium. And so growing up, I was never really involved in it. But um, it was around about 2004, I was in a share house in Melbourne there were a bunch of people in my networks who I knew who did radio and they were doing radio for 3CR Community Radio, which is, um, if you like, the, the most political community radio station down in Melbourne. Um, and I was listening to that a lot more uh, than the other types of radio, the ABC, and by that point in time I'd moved away from Triple J. Um, and it, I just kind of thought, well, I should go and be part of this. So did the training and put down, uh, when, when, I, when I did the training, put down that I wanted to be part of the news um, that they were doing. And before the training even finished, I was on the news. I was hmm. on the uh, Monday breakfast show, uh, which was 7 till 8.30, which meant I had to get in there at about 6. <laughs> and yeah, I'll tell you what. Warmed up, set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you what, um, in the middle of a Melbourne winter, riding to the station was horrendously cold. So that's, yeah, it's always been something that has been part of my life for as long as I can remember. Um, but, yeah, didn't really think about it until that tipping point, didn't think about being part of it until that tipping point in Melbourne. Hmm. Yeah, okay. And been involved ever since, on and off? Um... On and off, yeah, since 2004. Ended up... Um, leaving 3CR in 2008 because my partner and I ended up going and living in East Timor. Mm -hmm. So she got a job over there um, and I cobbled together different bibs and bobs of jobs while I was in Timor um, simply because I didn't, I went over there without a job prospects. And I did end up working for the International Centre for Journalists oh, yeah. uh, in Timor-Leste or Timor-Lorisa. What were you doing over there? Well, I ended up doing a bunch of different things with the ICFJ. Um, I worked with some translators and journalists in with a newspaper called the Dili Weekly, and that's bilingual, so it's written in Tetum and English. So I was working with people there in the English side of that. Um, I then ended up working uh, out of, so that was out of the Daily Weekly offices. I then ended up working with the ICFJ office and 
working with some translators there as well, a different group of translators, um, and they were working in print, television, and radio. Um, and so I, I didn't really do any broadcast, but I was working with people who were working in those areas. Um, and then I ended up helping out on a completely different project, which was trying to set up an independent printing press so that they could have independent newspapers that weren't didn't have to send their stuff over to Indonesia to get it printed and then come back and to kind of um, go around the government yep. setups. censorships and mm. bureaucracies that'll, you know, critical articles will get lost in the mix. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was, and that was a, a cooperative of a number of different newspapers around Timor that mm -hmm. was trying to set that up. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Did it go ahead? Did it happen? Um, I left before the project could get up and running. Mm -hmm. From what I heard was it did get going and then it collapsed. Yeah. As stuff does. As everywhere. Stuff does. Yeah. Oh, every, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it did, that didn't end up happening. So I don't know exactly. I, the Dilly Weekly is still going, but I'm not 100% sure. And, some, and the other newspapers are still going as well, but I'm not sure how that independent if they've been able to get it up and running again or not. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah. And um, yeah, and now you're obviously over at 4 Z. Yeah. Um, what are you doing? What are you what are you doing there? What are your shows? When are they? Um, well, I've I've only got one show uh, mm -hmm. and I do I co-present the news show Brisbane Line on Saturdays from 12 to 1 and my co-presenter is Lucy Chavinsky. Mm -hmm. And um, we, um, we both come from these different artistic backgrounds and we bring, as I kind of mentioned before, we bring kind of like that artistic aesthetic to a journalism show, which I really like. And the way I look at the one-hour show is I'm curating an interesting hour of listening. And in that, we have some interviews and if you like more sort of I don't know if straight's the right way to describe it but straight up and down news interviews questions and question and answer interviews that type of thing um, and there's other elements that we throw in as well so we use if you like the true fake ads that the juice media yeah. produce um, we have uh, things that we do ourselves so I I cut up media from other radio and television uh, broadcasts and create small collages and narratives about current issues and current events. Um, and Lucy does uh, a similar type of job with... Um, she's got this quite excellent uh, structure where she does a um, five things you need to know about whatever and she puts music under it and then she talks very quickly about the issue and, and it's really, really dense and in about three to four minutes she can actually get you up to speed about what's been going on on a particular issue over the last few months. So we've both come to, to that hour as looking at it as, I wouldn't say a performance, but a curated space yep. of radio for one hour and that's that's what we do um, every week. Is that uh, a lot of work, turnaround? Um, no, I don't... I, I don't know. I probably spend a day 
um, in my week, producing or putting that sort of thing together. Uh, obviously, we go live 12 to 1 on the Saturdays. I'm probably in the station about 10, 10.30, and I'll often do an interview and edit it or, or one of those collages or whatever. I'll spend the best chunk of Friday kind of putting that together. So I don't know if that is a lot of work to put together one hour's worth of radio. Uh, but, I mean, we are doing everything. Like, we're the reporter, we're the presenter, uh, we're the producer, yeah. <laughs> we're uh, tracking people down, trying to get the interviews, that type of thing. No, so, I, I don't yeah. think it's a lot of work for an hour's radio. Yeah. I think that's yeah. around about yeah, what it would be, particularly for a curated space. It's not just like a this Q&A. Yeah. Yeah, so so it doesn't feel for me. It doesn't feel like a lot of work, and um, I I enjoy it. I still really enjoy it <laughs> and get into it. Uh, I've been doing it uh, uh, over eighteen months now. This particular one, yeah, yeah. So back at back at three CR, I did the news show for twelve months, um, and then ended up on another show called the DIY Arts Show, where which was completely different. Um, idea. So I've been on uh, Saturday Brisbane line for, uh, you know, almost two years, coming up to two years now and still really loving it and enjoying it. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, and because we haven't talked about it yet, um, you're, you mentioned earlier, I mean, we have sort of, but you mentioned earlier that the, the passion that drives you, even though the payoff is a long winding road, is your fiction practice. Yeah. yeah. Um, your creative writing practice. And what is interesting to me about you is that, and I don't know how much you want to say, so I'm going to be vague and then you can fill in the gaps, but you've got a, a number of large projects going on at once. Mm. And I, I guess I wanted to ask um, how, how, you, how, you do, how you juggle those without having one finished. Mm. That's, a, that's a good question um so maybe if i just put it in the context of the house conspiracy residency that we're talking about um and i know today we were talking earlier i am juggling a couple of smaller things that i'm doing at the moment so obviously i did the saturday brisbane line and i write an article that goes up on the website with the um actual interview that was broadcast on the show um, but for the four weeks that I'm here at House Conspiracy, the project I'm working on is the, um, the soundscape that I'm doing for the residency. So what I am not doing at the moment is working on the novel that I was working on directly up to the beginning of this residency. And in a way, maybe that's, you know, how I answer your question. I actually just stop doing the other big project and take on this four-week project and then go back to that particular novel. Um, Do you lose the thread? Do you find it hard to pick the thread back up or are you pretty good at, like, com compartmentalising it and just sort of coming back to...? I'm pretty good at compartmentalising things. However, I will say that the creative process can't be compartmentalised. So on any given day, even if I'm in the middle of working on, you know, my novel, uh, I might sit down and have a horrendous day and do nothing sort of thing. So, I mean, there's that up and down. But, um, yeah, psychologically, I, I'm actually pretty good at going, no, I'm working on this now. 
rather than the novel. Um, for a long time, I got really concerned that I took on these other projects in order to self-sabotage myself with regards to the bigger projects, the novels. In figuring out my own creative practice and in figuring out the way I work, it's not self-sabotage. It's actually giving myself a bit of an emotional break from the overarching idea of writing such a big, crazy project. Emotional break because of the scale of the project or because of what you're writing about? A combination of both. So um, my, f- my first novel, which I have finished and I'm now trying to get published, emotionally it's really difficult to send it out there and either hear nothing back from publishers. Which is common. Yeah, yeah, or nothing back from agents or hearing something back going, hey, this is really amazing, it's a great book, blah, 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 you're clearly a good writer, but we don't publish that sort of novel. Uh, So on that level, emotional break maybe. Um, I do have a larger non-fiction piece that I'm working on as well. Um, So I might just take a step back and say, I've got a finished novel, I've got a realist novel that's half finished, I've got another magical realist novel that's half finished and I've got what they call a grief memoir that is half finished. Why do they call it a grief memoir? Um, Because it's a memoir about my grief and it's looking at my mum who passed away in 2013. So what I find with that is I've got to take breaks from the grief memoirs because of the content that I'm working with. Uh, whereas, say, for example, taking a break from the uh, realist novel that I'm writing called Magpie, that's actually just taking a break from the day-in, day-out grind of the scale. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, all these other projects, if you like, that I do like, this wonderful um, uh, kind of soundscape uh project for house conspiracy yeah i'm i'm no longer concerned that i'm doing that as self-sabotage it's actually part of the bigger broader um creative process that i'm involved in and as i was saying before like i can turn this stuff around a lot quicker (laughs) than my writing writing. yeah and there is that maybe it's selfish maybe not but there's that that more immediate payoff yeah the catharsis of sort of having something done and out there yeah yeah which is and it's really cool like and it's fun and um as as we've said or uh or as house conspiracy says in our applications and as house conspiracy talks about we are a um when we're here in the residency, it is a communal area and we are looking at collaborations so meeting all the other people here um and having to, uh, well, not having to, but talking about the different projects and that type of stuff. Actually, it it helps. It helps our own or my own creative processes anyway. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, and that's that's really the the thing, isn't it? Like it's not so much direct collaboration as sort of discussion, growth via discussion maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And seeing what other people are doing and hearing Mm. about the projects and seeing how they go about it. And it's like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting process. It may or may not happen that I use that process later on, but yeah, yeah even though... But you though, have a greater understanding of creativity yeah, exactly. in quote marks, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And that's that's what we've sort of found is that hard to, hard to get people to actually um, sort of directly collaborate because schedules are different. You know, there's so many exactly. barriers, but 
what you do learn is from watching and from talking, um, which is always what I've sort of said about university too. You learn more from your peers than yeah, particularly yeah, yeah. in sort of creative creative um, faculties. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's a nice sort of note to finish up on, Craig. Now, where can people find you on the internet? Ah, uh, um, you can find some of my um, soundscapes and that type of thing on SoundCloud. Um, Craig dash Garrett dash six. Yes, SoundCloud. Um, and the specific sort of uh, not specific, but the more. Um, question and answer interview stuff that I've done for 4 Z, you can find on 4 Z's website. Yep. Uh, 4ZZZ.org.au. Uh, go to the news section. There's, there's a news part. Um, and there, um, or on the website there, there is both the written stuff, the written work and the audio work that I do. Uh, I do not have a website at the moment. I'm working on that. Yeah, cool. Mm. And um, now that sort of, well, in a couple of weeks, in a week or a week and a half, when House Conspiracy is wrapped up, what's next? Um, I've got two things. The overarching uh, creative work, that uh, the, the novel that I'm working on at the moment, Magpie, the realist novel. I really want to get that finished. Um, and if you like, out of the way, <laughs> uh, partly because it's out of out of the three novels that I'm sort of working on, uh, it's it's the most likely to be published. It's the most logical to be published here in Australia. So that's um, that's where I'm heading there. The other thing that I've got going is um, a similar soundscape idea that I've done for this residency for the Queensland Poetry Festival. So I, I threw them a pitch and they kind of liked it. So I'm basically going to be doing a bunch of recording over the four days of the festival and I've given myself a couple of weeks to cut together a similar type of documentation that I'm doing here, but all about poetry and all about that festival. Yeah, great. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Um, you should show up to um, the small event that we're doing um, with Nomad theatre at, um, which is run by Caitlin Strongarm, who was one of our residents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, us and her and QPF are doing an event on the last day, I think. Ooh. Yeah, I'll throw you some details. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Great. Oh, well, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for chatting. Uh, thanks for having me. The House Conspiracy Podcast is produced at House Conspiracy by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. Mixing and editing by Tyler William Morrison. And music by the Reverend Isha Ramdas. If you'd like to support House Conspiracy, you can do so at houseconspiracy.org donate. And you can learn more about what we offer here at houseconspiracy.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>